So this morning, I am going to be teaching and equipping us regarding weapons for the in-between time. And I just want to see how many of you have heard the message on um, the in-between time, where I look at the life of Joseph. I hope that a number of you have. Um, that's great. A number of you have. If you haven't, I'd encourage you to go and download that message. It's called The In-Between Time, and it's on our website. Um, and I mentioned when I did that message that at some point I would be looking at weapons for the in-between time. And just so that we're all on the same page by what I mean when I say the in-between time, I'm talking about that time in between where God gave you a word, he gave you a dream, he gave you a promise. And then there's a whole period of time in the middle between the declaration of the word and the fulfillment of the word. Amen. How many of you know that there's a big time gap? You know, often there's a time gap. And it's not a time gap for us to sit back on our haunches and do nothing and say, oh, well, if that was really a word from God, then he'll just do it all. Well, well, he has done it all. And we are in victory. But he does require us to fight for the word and the inheritance that he's given us. Amen. So that is what this message is about. It's some weapons. I'm going to be giving us four weapons. And, and I just want to say that there are a whole lot more weapons. And maybe we'll have time to touch on them at a certain point. Um, but I've just chosen four for the sake of time. Uh, I, when I was putting this message together, um, I said to Sipo, because I have to send the, the notes to him by Wednesday for the PowerPoint, and I put all of these things together and I was thinking, yes, that's a weapon and that's a powerful weapon and that one too and that one too. And before I knew it, I had 53 pages of notes. <laughs> so I had to go back and say, okay, I can't cover all of these. Let me just choose four. So we're going to look at four weapons today, weapons that we need to use in the in-between time to help us to enter into our promised land. And the good news this morning is that God requires us to fight, but he's already won the victory. Amen. Jesus died and rose again from the dead. And, and in doing that, when we are in him, we are victorious. So we fight from a place of victory. We fight from a place where we know in the end, we will walk into the promises of God. But in the meantime, we still have to fight. But we don't fight from a place of, oh dear, I hope we're not going to lose this. I hope this is not the end. I don't know if we're just going to make it or maybe we're not going to make it. No, we don't fight from that place. We fight from a place of, at the end of the day, God is faithful to his word. And I know I'm going to enter where he said I'm going to enter and I'm going to stand and I'm going to fight for it. Amen. Okay, so... 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4 to 6 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now, what is that talking about? That is talking about the warfare very often that is in our own minds. Okay, a lot of people think that warfare is out there in the heavenlies, but a lot of warfare happens in between my two ears and in my own heart. Amen. So the strongholds and all of these things, arguments and high things, it's not talking about in the heavenlies somewhere that I'm going to bind and rebuke and cast down. It's talking about in my own mind, bringing my thoughts into captivity so that every thought lines up with what the word of God says. 
Okay, so a lot of warfare has to do with what I think, what I say, how I live my own life. That's what that's talking about, okay, primarily, primarily, not only, okay. And Ephesians 6 verse 10 to 18, this is also really powerful. It says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Here we go. Here are the demonic in the heavenly places, okay? Um, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. You see, sometimes warfare is about having done all, you just continue to stand. Amen. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith which you, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And the word of God, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with perseverance and supplication for the saints. Now, within that scripture, there's a lot of richness, and I, and I don't have time to touch on all of those things, but I'm going to touch on some of them. But it's a really important key scripture to us as we talk about warfare, because right there, um, we need to take note of all of those things that we're instructed to do. And I've taken some of the armor that is mentioned in Ephesians and I've combined it with some of the weapons and I've, I've linked it all up to make it easy for us to remember. So the first weapon of war that is so critical for us, so critical for us, and a lot of these things are so simple that we overlook them, but the first weapon that is so critical is the Word of God. The Word of God. This is really important. And, and even for myself, as I preach this to you, I'm really trusting God that he takes me to another level in terms of my personal disciplines with some of these things. Because it's the personal, consistent, daily disciplines that help to keep us and take us to our next level and help us to stand when the going gets tough and the tough will get going. Okay, the Word of God. The Word of God. So number one, the first weapon is the Word of God. And linked to this is faith. And I know that faith is part of our armor. But if you read in Romans 10 verse 17, it says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. So if we don't have the Word of God, we're not going to have faith. So faith is, so the word of God is critical so that we can walk in faith. So faith is a position of heart. It's a way of seeing. It's what we believe for. It shields our heart. It results in obedience. If I have faith for something and I believe it's going to happen, I'll do it. If I don't have faith for it, I'm more likely to disobey. I'm more likely to not position myself aright for obedience and for that thing to happen. A lack of faith often results in disobedience. A lack of faith can delay entrance into the promised land. So the word of God is critical that we can position ourselves and keep ourselves in a place of faith. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. So you know sometimes we come to worship and we say, Lord, I just want to please you with my life. 
Well, guess what? The answer is in his word. Without faith, it's actually impossible to please him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And I love the scripture, Hebrews 11, 11. By faith, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Very powerful. By faith, Sarah received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when it was impossible because she judged him faithfully who'd promised. And most of us know that Sarah vacillated between periods of belief and periods of unbelief and periods of making her own plan, and then she was back in belief. Don't we know that, right, about Sarah? But guess what? At some point, she received strength to bring forth the promise of God because she believed at that point. So even if we vacillate in our faith, we can't say, well, I've been, I've been an unbelief. I might as well just give up. No. Sarah herself received strength to conceive because she judged him faithful. So we bring ourselves back to a place of saying, Lord, I know that I will receive strength to bring forth this promise because I judge you faithful. Even if yesterday I was unbelief, but today I choose to stand in belief. Amen. If we look at Joshua and Caleb and the other Israelite spies, if you look at Numbers 13 and 14, that's, this is the point where the Israelites have crossed over the desert and they're wanting to go into their promised land. And they're at Kadesh Barnea and the Israelites send a delegation of spies into the promised land to check it out. And two of the spies, that's Joshua and Caleb, came back and they said, we are well able to overcome these enemies with the help of the Lord. But the 10 other spies, after 40 days in the promised land, saw their enemies through eyes of unbelief. They weren't ready. And guess what? All the Israelites, including Joshua and Caleb, had to go back into the desert back into the wilderness for another 40 years because they weren't found in a place of belief and faith. So who we hang out with is really important. Because Joshua and Caleb, even though they were in faith, they were hanging out with 10 other spies who were in unbelief, and they couldn't enter their promised land. So we have to be careful who we surround ourselves with. Sometimes our level of faith or our lack of faith can influence the duration of our in-between time. We find ourselves back in the wilderness for another 40 years because we didn't discipline ourselves and bring ourselves into a place of faith. Okay. And sometimes it's the level of faith of those we keep company with. We have to be really important. So faith, faith is really important. Faith and um Our shield of faith, that's really, really important. That's the first part of the word of God that I'm wanting to mention. The second part of the word of God is the sword of the spirit. So faith, I mean, the word of God is a sword. It's an offensive weapon. Faith is a defensive weapon. It protects us. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is what we release out our mouths. And that is an offensive Weapon. Ephesians 6 verse 17, it says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And Jesus gives us a beautiful example of how we to use the word of God. He was tempted. And you can look at this in Luke 4 verse 1 to 12. The enemy comes to him 
and tempts him. And if I, I'll pick it up in verse 3. Jesus just fasted and he's hungry. And the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And what did Jesus do? Did Jesus say, well, I bind you, devil, in the name of Jesus, and I rebuke you, and I command you and all your devils to get back into hell? Have you heard people pray like that? He didn't do that. And Jesus is our example. What does he say? He just says, but Jesus answered and says to him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word of God. Powerful. That's the weapon. The weapon is not the binding, the rebuking. That's important, but we have to have the word of God. We can bind and rebuke until we're blue in the face, but we have to know the word of God for the, for the situation. The devil comes again, verse 5, and says, and shows them all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil says to him, all of this I will give you and their glory because it's been delivered to me. And I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, worship me and it'll be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, I bind and I rebuke you. And I he doesn't do that. He says, Get behind me, Satan, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. He didn't have a 30-hour prayer meeting, praying in tongues. There's nothing wrong with that. But he knew the word of God. We have to know the word of God. We have to know the word of God so well that it's in our hearts that when the enemy comes and he presents a temptation to us or there's a situation, we have the word. We know exactly which word we're going to use for this situation. We use it. And yes, we can have a 30-hour prayer meeting afterwards, but we know what weapon to use for the right time. And the devil comes to him again and brings him up uh, to the pinnacle of the temple and says to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he'll give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands, they'll bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Find it very interesting that demons know the word of God too. And sometimes they know the word of God better than we do. And sometimes they know how to twist the word of God and trick us. And we get caught out. And then we think it's, it's an angel talking to us because it's the word of God. No, we have to know the word of God well for ourselves. And Jesus answers and says to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So Jesus had the word of God hidden in his heart. So when his time of temptation came, he could just pull it out and use it against the enemy. That is the offensive weapon that God has given us. 1 John 2, 16 says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of eyes, the pride of life is not of the father, but is of the world. And those are the three temptations that the enemy brought before Jesus. Those are the three temptations that the enemy often brings to us in our lives that we're going to face. And we have to have the word of God um, for those various situations so that he doesn't gain a legal foothold in our lives. In James 1 verse 12 to 15, it says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. And temptation comes in our in-between time. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. God doesn't tempt us. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So when I follow that train of temptation and I don't flee it, that's when I tend to get tripped up and fall into sin. But God doesn't tempt me. I have to have the word of God. I have to have boundaries so that I don't fall into sin. Okay. 
Another example of using the word of God. Say, say I struggle with um, depression and heaviness. Is to be able to say, right now I choose to pick up a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. Right now I'm declaring praise and I begin to declare praise. I use praise scriptures from Psalm. Say I'm feeling sick and I'm struggling with infirmity. I, I, um, and actually this happened to me quite quite recently, I come before God and I say, Lord, I refuse to carry the sickness that Jesus already carried for me. He already won victory. And then I go to Isaiah 53, verse 45, and I say, in the word it says, surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities and the chastisement of my peace was upon him. And by his stripes, I am healed. By his stripes, I am healed. I refuse to carry the sickness one second longer. And I carry on and I declare that word throughout the day, however many days it takes to get rid of that infirmity. But that's what using the word of God is all about. I say 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore my sins on his body that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes I was healed. Using the word of God, declaring it, choosing to position my faith and myself in that place where I'm saying, that's what I believe. That's what I'm fixing my eyes on. That's what I'm declaring. And that's what I'm going to see. Amen. So that is the word as a sword. So important. The word, the word of God is also an anchor. Truth is an anchor. It's, it's a belt. The belt of truth in that, in, in that scripture from Ephesians that I read out Truth is a belt. It helps to hold up my pants. It helps to cover my nakedness. Amen. It keeps me. It's an anchor. Okay. Um, it's also about being integrous. It's about allowing truth to dictate my life. Allowing God's word to direct and guide me in everything. Then I'm covered. Then I'm safe. Then I'm anchored. 1 John verse 1 verse 6 to uh, 1 John 1 verse 6 to 7 says, If we say we have fellowship with them and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 So, truth is really important. We have to let it hold us together, so to speak, as like a belt. Um, I'm listening to this audible book with my kids, and I've and I've, I've I read it um, a while ago. It's by Rick Joyner. He's a prophet. Some of you may know or may not know, but he's a recognized prophet in the in the body of Christ. And he had some experiences in the late 1990s where God um, showed him the. Um, kind of like the state of the church in the spirit realm, took him into heaven. He spoke to various biblical characters or, um, yeah, or visions of spiritual characters that are from the Bible. But he has, I want him to just read a short portion of um, his one book to you. He's talking about the battle, and we are in a battle as Christians. Whether, whether When you're born into this world, you're born into a battle. Whether you like it, whether you don't, whether you know it, whether you don't, you're in a battle. Whether you fight or not is up to you, okay? But we're in a battle. So he's talking about the battle, which is between good and evil, light and darkness. And he's talking about Christians and how some Christians 
Christians were um, climbing up this mountain, and it was a mountain that was based on truths of the Lord. And as they climbed higher and higher, the space for them to stand, the ledges, grew smaller and smaller. And um, they each had a sword, which they could fight with, which we know is the word of God, which is what I'm talking about. But he says... As they grew, as they climbed higher and higher in, the, in this warfare, in this particular battle, because the ledge they were standing on, the ledges they were standing on were so narrow and slippery near the top, he took his sword and he drove the sword into the ground and he tied himself to it while he shot at the enemy. And the voice of the Lord came to him saying, you have used the wisdom that will enable you to keep climbing. Many have fallen because they did not use their swords properly to anchor themselves. Themselves. No one else seemed to hear this voice, but many did what I had done. And then he carries on, he says, some of those who had not used their swords as anchors were able to strike down many of the enemy, but they were also more easily knocked from the ledges they were standing on. Some of these landed on lower levels of the mountain, but some fell all the way to the bottom and were carried away by the enemy. He says, I spent every free moment trying to drive my sword deeper into the ledge or trying to tie myself more securely to it. Every time I did this, wisdom would stand beside me, so I knew it was very important. That's from his Final Quest trilogy. So it seems to me as I'm reading that, that this reiterates the whole picture of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God being an anchor. It anchors my life. It keeps me safe. Amen. We build our lives on the sword, on the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, but which is also the rock, which is Jesus. Amen. And when we build our lives securely on the word and the principles we find therein, we're safe, we're secure. Proverbs 20 verse 28 says, Mercy and truth preserve the king, and by loving kindness he upholds his throne. We're preserved by truth. It keeps us. It's our protection. The fourth thing about the word, which I think is really important for us to remember as we are in this battle in the in-between time, is to remember that God's word has creative power. God's word has creative power. And God's word, they say, God's word in my mouth is as powerful as God's word in God's mouth because it's still God's word. It's still his word. And it's alive and it's active and it bears fruit. Hebrews 11 verse 3 says, we, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Do you have the word of God? Do you have the word of God? Of course you do. Are you framing your world? With the word of God. It says here that we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. How are you framing your, word, your world? Are you framing it with the word of God? Are you framing it with other people's words? Are you framing it with the enemy's lies to you about yourself? Frame your world with the word of God. In Genesis, we see how God created the world with his word. And he said multiple times, let there be. And it was so. Amen. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be, and it was so. And we can have that in our mouths. I love praying the word of God. I encourage you, declare the word of God over your world, over your children's world, over your family. Use the word of God to frame your world. Beautiful example of this is Ezekiel 37, where the hand, comes, uh, the hand of the Lord comes upon the prophet Ezekiel. And... Um, he sets him down. The Lord sets Ezekiel down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. 
How many of you can just see bones and you're in between time? You don't see an army, you just see bones. There's just death right there. You don't see the light, life. Well, the Lord brought Ezekiel to a valley of dry bones and there were very many in the valley. That's what Ezekiel says. And the Lord says to him, son of man, can these bones live? Maybe God is saying that to you today as you look at your in-between time and you don't see the life that you're wanting to see. Can they live? Can these bones live? Is there so much death? But can these bones live? And, and then he says, son of man, prophesy to these bones. Prophesy to them. Maybe God is saying that to you today. You know what, son, daughter, prophesy in your valley. Prophesy. And he says, surely I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Sometimes we just got to prophesy life, prophesy flesh, prophesy a whole army to the bones that we see. And so Ezekiel prophesied as he was commanded and there was a nose and a noise and a rattling and the bones came together and sinews and flesh and, and everything else. And, and then there arose a mighty army and the Lord said to him, prophesy to the breath that they breathe. And he does. And this whole army lived. And they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. You see, words are capsules. How many of you know that someone can speak to you and it's not so much what they said, but it's what the words carry that hurts? You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes someone can say something and you're like, what you said was borderline okay, but what came with it really stung. Because words are capsules for the spirit. They carry something. They carry life. They carry death, they carry blessing, they carry cursing. And Proverbs 18 verse 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. What fruit of your own tongue are you eating today? What are you releasing with your words? What spiritual dynamics are you releasing over your life, over your work, over your business? What spiritual, what, what dynamics are you releasing over your in-between time? Because God has given us power. This is a weapon. It's a weapon to use when we add the word of, of God onto our tongue. Amen. Proverbs 13, 2 says, A man shall eat well by the fruit of his mouth, but the soul of the unfaithful feeds on violence. Somewhere else in the Bible we read that violence can actually cover our mouths. Violence can cover us like a garment. You see, there's spiritual dynamics in the spirit that we can't see. But what we release with our mouth creates certain things and we need to be aware of it. Do you have realized the potential power that you have in the release of words from your mouth? I wonder if we truly realize that. We all rush to the front if there's a prophetic person or something. Yes, 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 prophesy, prophesy, prophesy over me. Well, guess what? It's the word of God. You can also prophesy over yourself. You can prophesy over yourself. Just open to Isaiah, open to one of the books of the Bible and prophesy. Thus says the Lord your God to you, Tracy Joy, this morning. Fear not, for I am with you. Behold, I am your God. I go before you and I open double doors and you will see my glory. And you can prophesy from the word of God. And it's just as powerful as if some holy man from somewhere comes, or holy woman, sorry ladies, comes and stands here. <laughs> and we're all holy. But anyway, you know what I'm saying? And prophesies. It's the word of God. What, what am I saying? The word of God is powerful. And you have the word of God in your Bible, in your phone, wherever you carry it. And I want to encourage you to use it over your life. Release spiritual dynamics in your home, in your family, over your lives. Take the word of God. Pick some apostolic prayers. Pick some scriptures from Isaiah, from Psalm, and declare them and change the spiritual dynamics in your home and in your life. 
Matthew 12, this is Jesus, and he says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. What are you bringing forth? You can bring forth good things. You can give birth to good things by what you release from your mouth. And an evil man brings forth evil things out of his mouth. But I say to you that for every idle word men speak, they will give account of it. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. God's word in our mouths has the potential to be as powerful as his word in his mouth if we believe it and if we declare it. You know, I remember once God said to me, you can have what you say, but you're saying what you have. Is that right? You can have what you say, but yes, but you're saying what you have. Sometimes we're just saying what we see and what we have. But we don't realize that we'll have what we say. So what are you saying? What are you releasing? The words we release are so important. Let they be lined up with the word of God. Let it be lined up with the sword of the spirit. And you know with these weapons, it's more than just saying, oh, okay, when I come to church, I'll hear the word and that'll be the sword of the spirit for me for the week. No. All of us need to say, you know what? Every day I am going to have some type of strategy whereby I get into the word of God, where even if I read one chapter a day, I'm going to read because, you know, sometimes this happens to me. Sometimes I'm like, Lord, where do I start? What are you saying to me today? What should I read today? Should I read from the gospels? Should I read from Psalms? Should I read from Isaiah? Should I read from that Bible study that I've got or that one that I started and I'm through or that other one that I and there's so many choices and we don't know where to go. But you know what? I've just come to to realize God's word is powerful. I just have to pick it up and start somewhere. Amen. Pick it up and start somewhere. Is it Psalm 91? I'll start in Psalm 91. Maybe then I'll flip, flip over to the epistles. But start somewhere and every day I must have a strategy to get into the word so that I have a word every day. And you know what is so interesting is that it always seems to talk to me. It always seems to, I don't have to have a prophetic word about where to, to start reading and what book he wants me to read. I just have to read and he's big enough that it will speak to me. Amen. Every day, something, every day, daily bread. That's the first weapon is the word of God. So important. Our faith depends on our level of word. Our fighting, our, our, our offensive fighting in this battle that we're in depends on the level of word in my heart. I might get into a battle and I didn't read the word for the past week and I needed something in there from the battle that I'm facing today. And so the battle that I'm facing today where it should have taken five minutes and be done takes a whole week because I didn't have the right weapon to use. You see... And i got to release it from my mouth. It's so powerful. That's the first weapon, the word of God. And we all have access to the word of God. The second weapon, which is so important, is prayer. Prayer. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful with perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, I haven't reached that level yet. Maybe, maybe Gracious has. She's a prayerful woman. Praying always. How many of you can say, I've reached that level? Praying always. I haven't reached that level. Okay. So we need to continually strive, saying, Lord, help me. Take me to the next level of prayer. I want to be prayerful. I want to be listening. I want to be hearing. I want to be watchful. I want to be persevering. And you know, I think this is also important that there are different types of prayer. 
There's prayer that I that I have in my devotional where I'm listening to God and it's a two-way conversation where ladies, maybe there are the emotions involved. Maybe I can sense his presence. Maybe I sense his love for me. I can hear the, 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 shep, the, the, the voice of the shepherd, okay? There's that type of prayer. Then there's the business end of the relationship. You know, um, how many of you are married and you know that not all of their inter- interactions between husband and wife are all, oh, I love you. Oh, yes. Oh, you're so beautiful. Oh, that, it's not all like that. There's admin too, right? It's like, okay, so I'm going to pick up the kids and then will you do that? And please, will you get some milk and bread? Okay, then we'll meet at home. Okay, you, I've got church. I've got this meeting. So we'll do the, you go there. I'll do this. There's admin involved. And it's like that with God too. And there's a business end of our prayer relationship with God. So we have this side, which is, um, I, I assume that the ladies enjoy this, but maybe the men do. You know, when you can feel God's presence, maybe you're in worship. But it's a devotional side, men. It's that side where you're in your word, you're hearing him speak to you, um, and he's ministering to you where you're at personally. You're getting your word for the day. Yes, maybe you're doing some warfare over your life. And then there's this other side, which is the business side, which is important, which is some, we do some of it here at Ignite, where we are saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to pray for the nation. Okay, Lord, you said in in, in your word that I need to pray for leaders. I'm going to pray for leaders. I don't have to have a prophetic word about it. I don't have to have the pastor tell me to do it. I'm going to do it because in his word he says I do it. I do it because not because it makes me feel good or because I get any emotion. I just do it because it's an admin part of the relationship. Amen. There's that type of prayer too and both types are important. And guess what? When I'm in this type of mode praying for things, yes, I, person, I'm talking about myself. I can see visions. I can see God speaking to me sometimes. He'll lead me in terms of sometimes the prayers will just bubble up and it'll come forth, but sometimes it doesn't. And it's just, okay, let me go to the word. I don't have to feel anything, but I do it in faith. I pray for your leaders. I Maybe I use some of the Pauline epistles, those apostolic prayers. So there are different types and levels of prayer. And it's important that we don't get stuck in the one that feels good or stuck in the one that's comfortable, but we must use all manner of prayer. And it's talking about this here in this particular verse where it says all prayer and supplication in the spirit. All prayer. All prayer. So what are the different types of prayers? They're prayers of thanksgiving. We have to make sure we include prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of praise, prayers of consecration, prayers of repentance, prayers of forgiveness, prayers of supplication. What is supplication? Supplication is where you're making petitions, where you're asking God, saying, Lord, please, can you go before my kids? Will you bless them? Will you protect them? Will you keep them? Will you help them to hear your voice, Lord God? You're asking him things. Okay, supplication, there's prayer of intercession. When you're standing in the gap between, maybe you're groaning in the spirit, maybe you're praying in tongues, but very often you'll have a burden. Okay, pray, pray, praying through a burden, prayer in the spirit, prayer of agreement. Agree, prayers of agreement are so important. Those are powerful weapons. Husbands and wives, use that. When, you, when two or three are, uh, agree on something, very powerful in the spirit realm. One can put a thousand to flight, two can send the legions fleeing. When a husband and wife who in covenant agree on something, that is very powerful. That's a powerful weapon. Prayer of agreement. There's listening prayer. There's the prayer of binding and loosening. Yes, it's a valid prayer. And that's just, that's a, 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 basically, that's allowing and disallowing in the spirit realm. That's what that's all about. There's warfare prayer. There's praying the word of God. There's so many different types of prayer. We, we, we don't need to get stuck in one type of prayer. And they're all powerful weapons that we need, that we need to use. Amen.
Okay, and, and we need to, I think, I heard a particular prophet teaching on this, and I think it's so important to separate in our daily devotions and our prayer lives, to separate my devotion time with the Lord, where I'm listening to Him, where I'm being strengthened, and my, the business side of the relationship, where I'm praying, your kingdom come, where I may be praying for my work, or praying for the nation, or praying for situations that I see outside of me. We need to separate those out, okay? It, it brings structure and clarity in our relationship and in our utilization of faith, of prayer, Okay, um, Romans 8 verse 26 to 28 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for, but the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he who searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God, and we know all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Okay, so sometimes when we don't know how we ought to pray, we need to trust the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage you, if you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues, that that is a powerful weapon that God gives us. And encourage you, speak to me after the service. I can help you with that. We can give you material on that. And, and just one other thing, you know, Christians love to quote this verse. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. All things. All things. So this terrible situation that has befallen me, it must be God's purpose. Because all things work together. It'll all work out for good in the end. You know what, honey? Or you know what, sir? If you look at the, the context of that verse, what is the context of that verse? The context of that verse is prayer. When you've prayed it so, then it will be so. But if you haven't prayed it so, then it might not work out according to his purpose. Amen. So don't quote that scripture to me and say, well, it'll all be okay because God works out everything for the good. I'll turn around and I'll say to you, have you prayed that into being? Because that's what that scripture is talking about. We pray it good. Amen. Okay, Philippians 4, verse 6 to 7, and I love this scripture. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds. So prayer is critical in terms of bringing peace, and peace is another weapon. It's actually a position that we can position ourselves in, in warfare, but I, I don't have time to cover that today. But prayer, so important in bringing Peace. So what is the first weapon? Word of God. What is the se our second weapon? Prayer. The third weapon is praise and worship. Praise and worship. And I've chosen an obvious scripture for this, um, but it's very encouraging. 2 Chronicles 20. If you go and read that particular portion um, in the word, basically Moab, Ammon, and, and others come to battle against the people of God, comes to battle, come to battle against Jehoshaphat and the people of God. And Jehoshaphat was afraid. You know what? If you are afraid in your battle, you're not alone. But it's what you do in that place that's important. Amen. Jehoshaphat feared, that's what it says in 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord. He proclaimed a fast throughout Judah, and Judah gathered together to ask God for help. And then Jehoshaphat goes on to pray in the court in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jehaziel in response to the prayer and the request. Sometimes God only answers us and gives us a strategy and response to our prayer. You don't have a strategy, I'll ask you, have you prayed and asked the Lord? 
And we continue reading, and, it's, and this is what the Lord says. Listen, all of you Judah and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord. Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Wow. To hear those words, the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves and stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And you can carry on reading verse 20, 21 to 22, and it says um, that he appointed those who should sing to go, uh, to go first and who should praise the beauty of the holiness of the Lord. And they went out before the army, saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. And when they began to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir had come against them, and they were defeated. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know what? This is such a powerful weapon. I love to do this. Put on some praise and worship in my room and say, Lord, I have this situation right now. I bring it before you, Lord, and I choose to set myself in the spirit over this situation and I declare your praise and I just begin to praise God. You can feel the presence of God. I'm sure he loves it. It's faith. It's saying, Lord, I position myself in a place of faith. I'm not going to fight. I'm going to stand still right now because I know I'm going to see your salvation. I'm going to praise you. doesn't mean I don't go out and do something afterwards, but right now I'm going to praise you over the situation and I sing and I worship. When I'm encourage some of you to do that this week. With Choose a situation and just say, Lord, I'm going to try this. I'm going to praise you over this particular situation. So powerful. And they, were, and they won. They basically got the victory. They didn't have to do anything except praise and trust. I love Psalm 149. It's another picture of this. It says, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance and sing praises to him, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Now listen to this. Let the saints be joyful in glory and sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. Why? To execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor has only passed a Paul. Sorry? Sorry, Nami, can I? All. Does it say all? Does it say all his saints? It says all his saints. This honor has all his saints. That's you and me, baby. That's everybody who believes in Jesus and calls on him as Lord. We have this honor. We can execute judgment in the spirit realm with the written word of God. So God's will coming into being. We can bind uh, kings in the spirit realm and nobles in the spirit realm by our praise. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that encouraging? You just have to praise. When a spiritual heaviness sets in, when depression sets in, I want to encourage you to praise. I want to encourage you to put, a garment, put on a garment of praise for that spirit of heaviness. And I know some of you struggle with this. And sometimes I can feel it as well. I struggle with it. That heaviness comes, and I know it's not a natural heaviness. Pick up praise. If you struggle with torment of any kind, if you struggle with addictions, if you struggle with fear and anxiety, with hopelessness, I want to encourage you to utilize this weapon that you've been given. Amen. 
Praise, it's powerful. Put on praise and worship that you know, that you like, and let it fill the atmosphere. Let it fill your home. Let it fill the atmosphere within you, within your mind, within your heart, your car, your lounge. Let it fill your house even when you're sleeping, and you'll feel the difference that it makes. Amen. Okay. Do we have time for the fourth one? Yes. Yes. Okay. So what's the first one? Word of God. What's the second one? Prayer. What's the third one? And the fourth one that I'm going to give you is forgiveness. Forgiveness is actually a weapon that we have to use over our own lives and over our own hearts. And I'm going to show you that. Um, But with those first three, before I go deeper into forgiveness, with those first three, I want to encourage you to look at your schedule, to look at your daily the layout of your daily things. And I know for some people, maybe it's not easy to do it first thing in the morning. Maybe you do it at night. Maybe you do it on your lunch break. But I encourage you to come up with a strategy that works for you, that will work for you. And no matter how little it may seem, put each of those everywhere, in your, somewhere in your day. So every day, from Monday through to Sunday, you've got a bit of word, you've got a bit of prayer, you've got a bit of praise and worship. Because I'm sure if you're like me, if you don't diarize it, it doesn't happen. With me, if I don't diarize it, it's probably not going to happen. So just think through it strategically. Say, okay, you know what? I take 20 minutes to drive to work. I'm going to use that for praise and worship. I take um, however many minutes to cook dinner. I'm going to use that to pray. I'm going to pray. I take this much time to drive home from work. I'm going to get an audible Bible. I'm going to play it in my car. There are things that we can do practically to make it work. For my kids now, I'm playing audible books. I'm in the car with them a lot. I'm playing audible books. They can be discipled in the car. Instead of me driving and trying to keep them quiet or trying to stop them from arguing or whatever, I just put an audible book. They're very quiet. (laughs) They're very quiet and they're learning. Okay, so try. I want to encourage you. Can I give you that challenge? Can I challenge you and me this week, every day, praise and worship, prayer, word of God? Okay, awesome. The fourth one, forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is a weapon that we have to use over our own lives. When Jesus instructs us to forgive and encourages that our heavenly Father will forgive us even as we forgive others. So you know in that particular scripture, that word forgive, what it means is this. To send away, to send forth, to yield up, to expire, to let go, to let alone, to let be. You think of something that you've been carrying that someone said or someone did or someone didn't do or maybe your parents or work colleague or it's to leave, to not discuss now, to not bring it up every time with your close friends, to omit, to give up a debt, to keep no longer, to leave, to leave one by not taking him as companion. So it means that you leave it. You don't take it as your companion anymore, okay? The English definition of of, uh, to forgive means to cancel or pardon. So to forgive is to absolve from liability to punishment for a crime or fault committed. So, So you're absolving someone from liability. You're releasing them from a debt that they actually do owe you. So a lot of people, a lot of us have problem with forgiveness because we don't understand what it is. So forgiveness is not saying what you did was acceptable. It's not saying that it was okay. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not saying I'll trust you again. That's not what it's saying. It's not 
saying that I'm, I'm not going to put boundaries around my life so you can't do that again. No, that's not what it's saying. It's not saying I condone your actions or your attitude or what you said. That's not what it's doing. It's not saying that I agree with what you did or didn't do. Okay? It's not being a doormat. It's not being weak. And it's not being permissive. But it's choosing to say, I am not going to let that affect me anymore. And so because of that, I will forgive you. It's not about you. It's actually about me. Amen. And it's powerful. Peter approached Jesus and says to him, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my fellow believer who keeps offending me? You know, when I read this, I find it so interesting because Peter didn't say, how many times do I have to forgive the Satanist down the road? Or how many times do I have to forgive my non-believer friend? He didn't say that, did he? He said, how many times do I have to forgive my fellow believer? And how many of you know that it's often our brothers and sisters who hurt us? It's our leaders in the church who hurt us. It's our leaders in our cell groups. It's our fellow, you know, maybe the door greeter didn't smile at you. I don't know. Maybe the pastor didn't look at you. Maybe I didn't smile at you. Maybe I didn't see you. You know, it's our fellow believers that offend us. And, and that's what Peter's saying. How many times must I forgive my fellow believer? And you know what Jesus said? Not seven times, Peter, but 77 times. Basically, Jesus is saying, as many times as you have to. As many times. That's really tough, isn't it? And then Jesus goes, goes on to say, the lessons of forgiveness in heaven's kingdom can be illustrated like this. And he, he tells a parable, a story, where there's a king who had servants who borrowed money from a royal treasury. And... He decided, the king says, okay, it's time to settle these accounts. And one of the servants owed him $1 billion. Okay, I'm reading from the message, I think. So it's um, in our everyday language. So the one of the servants owed him $1 billion. And the king eventually says to the servant who owes him $1 billion, it's okay, I forgive you of that debt. Then that servant who's just been released of $1 billion goes to this other chap who owes him... Um, uh, it's much less. I'm trying to find what, uh, $20,000, that's what the message says. $20,000, and he seizes him by the throat and begins to choke him and says, you better pay me right now everything you owe me. Okay? And the one who, um, and basically the associates see what's going on and they were outraged and they go to the king and they say, king, this is what's happened. And you know what the king says? You begged me and I forgave you the massive debt you owed me. Why didn't you show the same mercy to this fellow servant who owed you money? The king turned him over to the prison guards to be tortured until all of his debt was paid. And Jesus says, in the same way, my heavenly father will deal with you if you do not release forgiveness from your heart toward your fellow believer. What is that whole parable about? It's saying Jesus forgave us much more than we will ever be required to forgive anyone. And if Jesus forgave us that much, $1 billion, who are we to say that we cannot forgive that person for a debt much less than what we've been forgiven? And the point is that forgiveness is the voluntary release of a person over which one has legal control. And if we do not forgive, we personally will suffer and dwell in a prison of our own making if we do not forgive. That's the point. There's a prison that I voluntarily put myself in when I do not forgive. It's like my, my say somebody does something to me. Unforgiveness is like I'm going to drink the poison and hope you die. Okay, it doesn't work. 
Okay, I'm the one who gets poisoned. And the problem in warfare is that when I walk with unforgiveness, it easily becomes bitterness. It easily becomes offense. And those things give the enemy a foothold in my life. So in warfare, when I walk around with forgiveness, or maybe it's grown and it's now bitterness, or maybe it's now offense, if I walk with that, it's like the enemy has a legal square in my heart to operate in my life from. And that's why we need to use forgiveness as a weapon over our own hearts, because it removes the foothold, any foothold that the enemy may have in our lives. Amen. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying it's important. Some things are important. They go against our natural logical thinking. They go against our tendencies, but we have to do them because we anchored by the word of God and the word of God says that forgiveness is critical. Therefore, because I'm anchoring myself, we choose to anchor ourselves or not to anchor ourselves because I choose to anchor my life by the word of God. Come on, guys, we're either all in or not in at all. Be all in or be not in at all. You know, that's what I am. I'm either all in or I'm not in at all. If God's word is God's word, if God's word is true, then I'm going to anchor my whole life by his word. Because if I only anchor half my life, then I'm confused. You know, let it be truth. Let, we, let us go for it all out. We anchor our whole lives by that. Otherwise, we're playing games. Amen. I've got a, a t uh, basically a, a testimony written by um, a Jewish man, Simon Wiesenthal, and I, and I mentioned it when I, was talking, when I preached on forgiveness, and I'm going to mention it again. It's a very powerful picture of how difficult forgiveness is sometimes, and um, it's a, he poses a very powerful question at the end. So this was written by a Jewish man named Simon Wiesenthal concerning some of the experiences he had during the Second World War. And he's written about them in his book, The Sunflower, on the possibilities and limits of forgiveness. And I'm going to read um, quite a lot, long, long portion of this because he writes so well. So please just, please listen to me. Okay, don't fall asleep. Okay. <laughs> okay. So he says, our column suddenly came to a halt at a crossroads. I could see nothing that might be holding us up. But I noticed on the left of the street there was a military seminary. Cemetery. Sorry, oh, that's a terrible, terrible slip. There was a military cemetery. It was enclosed by a low barbed wire fence. The wires were threaded through sparse bushes and low shrubs, but between them you could see the graves aligned in stiff rows. And on each grave there was planted a sunflower, as straight as a soldier on parade. I stayed spellbound. The flower heads seemed to absorb the sun's rays like mirrors and draw them down into the darkness of the ground as my gaze wandered from sunflower to to grave. It seemed to penetrate the earth, and suddenly I saw before me a periscope. It was gaily colored, and butterflies fluttered from flower to flower. Were they carrying messages from grave to grave? Were they whispering something to each flower to pass on to the soldier below? Yes, that was just what they were doing. The dead were receiving light and messages. Suddenly, I envied the dead soldiers. Each had a sunflower to connect him with the living world and butterflies to visit his grave. For me, there would be no sunflower. I would be buried in a mass grave where corpses would be piled on top of me. No sunflower would ever bring light into my darkness and no butterfly would dance above my dreadful tomb. Wiesenthal and his group of Jewish prisoners proceeded to do work in an old Polish building 
It had been converted into a hospital of some sort. And arbitrarily and simply because of the fact that Wiesenthal was a Jew, he was summoned into a dying German's room, a German, a sol German soldier's dying, and Wiesenthal is summoned by this particular German soldier. And the dying soldier begins to recount to Wiesenthal what he'd been through in the war. And remember, the Germans had killed a lot of Jews, okay? So he describes in detail a situation that had plagued him since when it had happened. And he said that there was a large group of Jews, mostly women and children, and elderly were forced into a three-story house. And they did it in Russia. And I'm not even going to try and say the name of the place but it's in Russia, okay? They, and they forced these, these Jews into a three-story house, and the men among the Jews were forced to carry petrol, um, canisters of petrol to the top floors of this three-story house. And the Germans locked the house door, and machine gun was aimed at the door, and then they threw grenades into the house, uh, through the windows, and the house burst into flames. And the German soldier says, we heard screams and saw flames eat their way from floor to floor. We had our rifles ready to shoot down anyone who tried to escape from that blazing hell. The screams from the house were horrible. Dense smoke poured out and choked us. Behind the windows of the second floor, I saw a man with a small child in his arms. His clothes were alight. By his side stood a woman, doubtless the mother of the child. With his free hand, the mother covered the child, with, with his free hand, the father covered the child's eyes and then he jumped into the street seconds later the mother followed then from the other windows fell burning bodies and we shot oh how we shot the dying man held his hand in front of his bandaged eyes as if he wanted to banish the picture from his mind I don't know how many try to jump out of the windows but that one family I shall never forget least of all the child it had black hair and dark eyes and then the man, this German soldier continues and he describes how he got to be where he got so, so wounded. And he said they were approaching another city in Russians and they lay 100 yards from the Russians waiting for the order to basically um, engage in, in fire with them. And he says the artillery fire was incessant. We cowered in our trenches and tried to conquer our fear by drinking brandy. We waited for the order to attack, and it came, and we climbed out of the trenches and charged. But suddenly I stopped, as though rooted to the ground. Something seized me. My hands, which held my rifle were fix and, uh, with fixed bayonet, began to tremble. In that moment, I saw that family, the father, the child, the mother, and they came to meet me. And I said, no, I cannot shoot at them a second time. The thought flashed through my mind, and then a shell exploded by my, by my side, and I lost consciousness, and, he, and basically says, I woke in the hospital, and I knew that I'd lost my eyesight. So he had a flashback where he saw that woman and child and father, and, and he couldn't shoot, and because of that, he was wounded. And he said, it's a miracle that I'm still alive. Even now, I'm as good as dead. And then this is what he says to the Jewish man. He says, I know what I've told you is terrible. In the long nights while I've been waiting for death time and again, I've longed to talk about it to a Jew and beg forgiveness from a Jew. Only I didn't know whether there were any Jews left. I know that what I'm asking is too much for you, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace. Remember, he's in a building. He's talking to the Jew. He's recounting this to a Jew. Simon Wiesenthal stood up and looked in his direction for at his folded hands. Between his folded hands, there seemed to rest a sunflower. At last, I made up my mind, and without a word, 
I left the room. He didn't forgive him. The German died without forgiveness. Now, the crux of the matter is the question of forgiveness. And forgetting is something that time takes care of, but forgiveness is an act of volition. And only the sufferer is qualified to make the decision. Now you, it says, you who have heard this sad and tragic episode in my life can mentally change places with me and ask yourself the crucial question, what would I have done? And what would you have done if you were Simon Wiesenthal? And that this is the point, that forgiveness is not easy. Should he have, should he not have? I don't know, I can't judge. But according to God's word, God requires that we forgive. Not because some soldier who did something to us deserves it, no. But for our own sake, we need to forgive. We forgive because Christ forgave us, amen. Okay, what would you have done? Who can know the road that Simon walked, that Simon Wiesenthal walked? We don't know what he went through. Friends mistreated, family tortured, even himself tortured, people murdered at the hands of the Germans. Very difficult. Very difficult for us to say, do this or do that. But in our own lives, we can say, you know what? I need to choose forgiveness. So what are you choosing? Today, what are you choosing? When people have wrongfully, have done things, things to you that are wrong, that you know are unjust, what are you choosing? Are you choosing forgiveness? Luke 17, it says it's impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. They will come. They will come. They are coming. What are you going to choose? We have, we have to choose beforehand, I think, what we're going to choose. Because when the time comes, it's very difficult to make the right choice. Now, I want to share one more account with you before I close my message. And this particular account is of a man who was in a garden late at night. And he'd been in prayer for a period. And someone whom he had walked with for a number of years arrived, leading a crowd with swords and clubs sent from respected religious people. And they arrived to falsely accuse him. He'd been in prayer and he was doing the will of God with pure motives and he'd done nothing wrong. Maybe you sometimes feel like that. A friend led the crowd that came against him. The crowd came with swords and clubs to hurt, but this man didn't desire to fight. The crowd was sent from respected religious leaders, authorities, from the authorities of the day, and, and the authorities wanted to arrest him at night because they knew what they were doing was wrong. They feared the crowds would riot if they did it in the day. And you know who this man is, right? It's Jesus. This is Jesus. Jesus was arrested at night. He was taken to Annas' home. Annas was, not the, Annas was not the current high priest. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the high priest. So they were taken to Annas' home um, because Annas held the real power. So it was an illegal gathering, illegal court gathering. Caiaphas was the high priest, not Annas. Okay? He was then taken before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders in Caiaphas' palace, between midnight and dawn for another illegal, illegal inquisition. Okay, according to Jewish laws, it shouldn't have happened at night. So these spiritual religious authorities were breaking their own law in their desperation to get at Jesus. How's that for lack of justice? Okay, the authorities were looking for false evidence. They rounded up a string of false witnesses and listened to false testimony. 
and they coaxed what they misinterpreted as a blasphemous confession out of Jesus and condemned him as worthy of death. However, they didn't have the authority to pass the death sentence. Only the Roman court could do that. So they then had to Oh, they then had to ratify their decision. So they had to have another gathering in daylight so that they could uh, basically com comply by their own laws. So they, they had a gathering in daylight, a, a legal gathering. And then they had to go send Jesus to the Roman courts because it was only the Roman courts that could condemn him to death. Okay? So Jesus had two invalid and illegal trials. The third was a bogus trial with all of that false testimony. And then he goes to three Roman trials. And um, the accusations were religious in nature, but Romans courts, Roman courts didn't care for that. So they had to twist the accusations against Jesus that, and change it to be he's a rebel claiming to be a king and inciting people to rebel against Rome. And in that way, he could get the Romans' attention. So all of these trials, they were all trumped-up trials with trumped-up charges, and it was all false. So when you're falsely accused of stuff, you're in good company. You're in good company. Amen. Anyway, it carries on. You can go and have a read of it. But after Jesus suffers all of these things, six trials, three of them with the Jewish authorities, three of them with the Roman authorities, a lot of them bogus, a lot of them illegal. Jesus suffered humiliation, mockery, torturous beatings. He suffered pain on his way to the crucifixion. Can you imagine him at the crucifixion, abandonment looks on, because only one of his 12 disciples is still there, okay, only one remained, it was John, near, it was John, resentment looked on, pride looked on, mockery looked on, malicious intent laughed, misunderstanding looked on triumphantly with false accusation, with envy, with hatred. Jesus had many opportunities to harbor unforgiveness, to harbor resentment, to harbor, harbor bitterness, but what did he choose? The first of his last seven statements from the cross, Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Isn't that amazing? And that is the example that he left us. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And that is the standard. If we accept forgiveness from our Father, that is the standard that Jesus expects us to extend to others. And it's a weapon that we have over our lives to keep and to guard our hearts Louis B. Smeedy said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover, discover that the prisoner was you. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the, forgive, that the prisoner was you. Forgiveness is a key which Jesus holds out to us. It's a key that unlocks our own prison gates. Unfortunately, unforgiveness blinds, and it often blinds us to our own, to our own imprisoned status. Unfortunately, unforgiveness provides the enemy with a foothold in our lives. So forgiveness is a weapon of war. It's a weapon we are to use over our own hearts, our own lives. And failure to do so has multiple consequences. Okay? Unforgiveness is a place of pride. It's a place of self-righteousness. It's a place which often comes to be bitten, a place of bitterness, a place of offense. Okay? Unforgiveness is a place where... If we don't deal with it, it, it brings a, spiritually, a spiritual barrenness in our, into our lives. There's a spiritual barrenness and a, there's a deficit of life in an area when we choose to not release forgiveness. 
And so we have to forgive. It's contrary to our natural thinking, but it's actually a weapon of war. I don't want there to be a place of death, a place of barrenness in my life. I don't want to fail to enter into the promises that God has for me because someone did something terrible to me and I choose to not release forgiveness. Amen. So I want to encourage us this morning. We have to look at our lives and say, Holy Spirit, show me where I haven't released forgiveness. And show me where I need to utilize this weapon that you've given me. It's a strength. To forgive requires much strength. It's not a weakness. It's a strength. Okay? Show me and help me to do that. Another quote. I don't know who said it, but... Um, I don't know where I read it. I never knew how strong I was until I had to forgive someone who wasn't sorry and accept an apology I never received. I never knew how strong I was until I had to forgive someone who wasn't sorry and accept an apology that should read, I never, not I ever, I never received. We're strong if we forgive people who, are never, who aren't sorry. To forgive someone who's not sorry, who's not apologetic, it's hard. But it requires strength and we can do it. So, in conclusion, there are many weapons that we've been given to use in life. There are many weapons that we've been given that we have to use every day and most especially in our in-between time. In that time between the declaration of the promise of God and the fulfillment of it. And all of us at various stages in our lives are in this place in various promises. We have to use these weapons. What is the first one that I shared with you today? The word of God. The second one, prayer. The third one, praise and worship. And the fourth one, forgiveness. Yes, regular and practiced use of these throughout our lives is critical. It's important. And we must endeavor to do it, diarize it, and make it happen. Amen. Okay, why don't you close your eyes with me and let's, and let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're a good father. You're a good God. That you know what we're going to face before we face it. That when we face it, Lord, we can know that we face whatever battle from a place of victory. And Lord, you've given us weapons. You've given us armor. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, that you would train us how to use the weapons of war that you've given us. We don't have to wait for some elaborate weapon that we've, elaborate revelation that we've never heard before, Lord, but we have to be faithful with these things that you've shown us already from your word. So would you teach us, Lord, how to use your word? how to hide it in our hearts, how to do it, how to put it in our everyday lives, how to fit it into our daily routine. Would you teach us how to fit in prayer, Lord, how to take our prayer lives to the next level using different types of prayer, using more types of prayer. Lord God, would you help us even as we... Um, even as we praise, as we worship in our personal quiet times, would you give us creative strategies to fit it in everywhere, to fit it in, in multiple places and to do war over our lives and the situations and the people around us, Lord. And Holy Spirit, we ask this morning that you would shine your light in our hearts and show us where we're carrying unforgiveness toward any people. And help us to release forgiveness. Now with every eye, you can all, will you all stand for me please this morning. And with every eye closed, with every head bowed, I want to give an opportunity to, you, opportunity to you. Number one, if right now you already have someone in mind that you know that you need to forgive. And um, you would like us just to pray with you. Would you just slip up your hand? I can pray. We can pray with you right now about that. Is there someone you need to forgive? Father, you see the hands 
You see the hands. You can slip your hand down if you've slipped it up. It's before God. It's not before man. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for these people that you've already been speaking to through your Holy Spirit. And right now, Lord God, we choose, we see that person, that situation, that thing, and we choose to forgive. We see it in a cage. We open the cage door, Lord God, and we choose to release that person, that thing, that situation to you. We choose to release forgiveness, not because they deserve it, Lord God, not because of any other reason except that you command us to, except that you require it of us, except that we too want to be free. And so we release forgiveness. And I thank you right now for your cleansing, Lord, for each person who's done this, each person who's released forgiveness. Thank you for a cleansing for a strengthening, for a filling with hope, for a filling with love. And right now we close any door that was opened due to unforgiveness. We close it. Plead the blood of Jesus over your people this morning in Jesus' name.